You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Lucero, and this is the Sunday, October 30th, 2022 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's episode of Labor Express, we'll have both local, state, and international topics to discuss. In the first half of the program, the Chicago Teachers Union is gearing up to do battle with all of Chicago's charter schools as contracts citywide are up for renewal this year. We'll hear from charter school teachers, parents, and union staff about what they will be fighting for in these new contracts. In the second part of the program, we'll hear about the stakes in Brazil's runoff presidential election, which is taking place today. The outcome of the election is not only vitally important for the future of Brazil, but also of great concern for Latin America, the Western Hemisphere, and indeed the globe as a whole. More on that on tonight's second half. But first, before either of those stories, I have a brief segment for you about the complex situation here in Chicago and in Illinois regarding the minimum wage. Given the successful fights in the last decade for increased minimum wages in Chicago, in Cook County, and even at the state level, there now exists a bit of a Byzantine labyrinth of laws regarding the minimum wage that is likely to be quite confusing for workers not in the know. So with the help of some of our friends from several of the Chicago area worker centers, we'll try to make sure our listeners are in the know. Warehouse Workers for Justice, TUWAP, which stands for the Temp Worker Union Alliance Project, and the Raise the Floor Alliance have continued to conduct terrific online Know Your Rights workshops for Illinois workers. I have frequently aired excerpts from these workshops to keep our listeners informed and to point you to the workshops, which are posted online and accessible at any time that you want to check them out. The most recent workshop includes a discussion of the minimum wage laws at the city, county, and state levels, and how you can protect yourself if your employer is violating one of those laws. What follows is just a little taste of the full hour-long workshop, which covered more than just minimum wage. We'll have a link to the full workshop up at laborexpress.org. In this brief excerpt, Ada Sandoval of the Raise the Floor Alliance and Janelle White of the TUOP describe the various minimum wage laws that now exist in our state. With minimum wage, you'll hear different rates, and that can get confusing, especially like with this um, being uh, virtual, where you're getting, we're probably getting workers who are across the state, like outside of Chicago, um, outside of Cook County. So it's not always clear um, what minimum wage workers should be getting paid. Um, there are different minimum wage rates depending on what laws apply, where you're doing the work. So there's a federal law, there's an Illinois state law, there's the Cook County minimum wage and a Chicago ordinance that establishes a Chicago minimum wage as well. So these are all at different rates. Um, and I do have that information here. Um, in Illinois, the minimum wage is $12 an hour. So, um, if you're working in Illinois, you should be, you're supposed to be get, getting paid at minimum $12. You're entitled to higher rates depending where you're at. So um, in Cook County, unless the suburb you live in has opted out, the minimum wage is $13.35. Unfortunately, a lot of suburbs have opted out of the Cook County minimum wage ordinance. So um, you would have to check with your municipality, your, your town where you're working to see if um, they are a part of the Cook County minimum wage. Um, and then in Chicago, there's um, it depends on if you're working for a um, like a big employer or a small employer. But if you're working for an employer that has 
four to 20 workers, that's considered a small employer. And the minimum wage is $14.50. And for um, big employers, it is um, employers that have more than 21 workers. And right now the minimum wage is $15.40. So Illinois is increasing the minimum wage a dollar every year until 2025 um, to try and get to $15 minimum wage. Chicago will also continue to increase the minimum wage, um, but that isn't at a set rate. That will be calculated by, based on the consumer price index. So that will change year to year as well, um, but we won't know what that new minimum wage will be until um, when the change is in effect. As a worker, if you uh, take an assignment, whether it's a temp worker assignment or you're a direct hire, um, you know, permanent employment, uh, permanent employee of a company, if you find that you're being paid less than minimum wage, then what would be that worker's course of action? Yes. Yeah, so if um, you're you're um, you've looked into whether the county that you're in has a higher minimum wage. You looked into like the the um, you're working in Chicago. The minimum wage they're a big employer. It's supposed to be a higher rate, um, and they're violating the law. Then you have different um, different recourses that you can take. So if if you're outside of Chicago, outside of Cook County, um, you can file with the state. And that is the Illinois Department of Labor. And um, that you can do without any attorney. Um, with any wage violation, you can also look for an attorney to file in court for you. But if you want to um, just continue on your own, if you're having a hard time finding an attorney, or um, if you, um, if you just want to try and do it on your own um, with the state, like, again, you don't need attorney representation. There is also um, a there's also the Office of Labor Standards in Chicago that will um, that you can file complaints with if you're working in Chicago. Um, and then the Cook County Commission on Human Rights is also there for enforcing um, Cook County violations. So there are different um, government agencies that you can file with. And what that would look like is like filing, filling out whatever form that they require, um, giving them the information that they ask for and um, keeping like any records that you have. So like pay stubs, schedules that show how many hours you work. So just keeping track of everything like that. Um, and with state agencies, as I mentioned, you don't need attorney representation. If you want to file in court, um, you can also file on your own, um, but it is a difficult, it can be a difficult process. So attorney representation in court is usually, um, is usually the better method. Um, but there are things that workers, it, like if you want to do it on your own, you don't have to wait around for an attorney. Um, and not to, <laughs> not to put down attorneys, but I know there's some workers who like might have, um, might want to just go ahead and do it on their own, and it's it's it is possible. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. For more from the full Know Your Rights workshop organized by Warehouse Workers for Justice, TUOP, and the 
uh, Raise the Floor Alliance. Check out the link that we have up at laborexpress.org. Well, it's that time again. Students are back in school and well into their first semester. The Thanksgiving break is just a few weeks away, believe it or not. But the fight for quality public schools in Chicago never takes a break. It's a ceaseless struggle on the part of educators, school staff, parents, students, and the Chicago Teachers Union to push back on the Chicago School Board, the charter school operators, the corporate sector, Chicago's mayor, and right-wing politicians at the state level to ensure that our schools are adequately funded and resourced and that teachers and other staff receive a livable and sustainable wage. When the charter school movement, or better known as the coordinated effort to privatize Chicago schools, set its sights on Chicago back in the early 2000s with Renaissance 2010, one of their goals was to save money, or even make money, you could say, by reducing the funds going to public schools, especially reducing the wages, benefits, and power of educators and their unions. What the privatizers did not count on, however, was the tremendous fighting spirit and creativity of education workers, especially when allied with community-minded parents, students, community organizations, and a reformed, progressive, militant union in the form of the CTU. For charter operators, top priority was to decimate teachers' unions. But from the zero organized charter schools that we had back in 2008, the charter school division now is one of CTU's largest and most successful organizing efforts with several dozen union charters. This year marks a particularly important milestone as the CTU was successful in creating a situation where CTU contracts are expiring at 13 charter operators representing 35 different schools, so it results basically in a coordinated citywide contract fight. This is a huge blow to the divide-and-conquer strategy of the charter school operators and their friends in local state government as well as the corporate sector who thought that they had succeeded in undermining public schools through school privatization. The CTU kicked off this year of contract fights with a rally outside Isidro Adar Elementary in the Gage Park neighborhood on the 18th of October. In the following excerpt from that press conference that was held at the rally, you'll hear not only the leaders from the CTU, but also teachers and parents as well. My name is Linda Perales. I'm an organizer with the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, today we are here uh, because uh, our contract... Uh, for the charter schools of CTU is under negotiation right now. Woo! There are there are 13 charter operators and 35 schools. All of their contracts have ended and we are negotiating with charter operators right now. All charters are negotiating the same contract. We want the same things because we want to set higher standards in an industry that is known to have lower standards. We are fighting for many different things, but to sum it up, we are fighting for supportive, safe, and sustainable schools. And you will hear from speakers today what that means for our schools, what it means to be supportive, safe, and sustainable. Uh, so our first speaker today um, is Caroline Rutherford. She is the she is the vice chair of the charter division of CTU. Hi everyone. I'm Caroline Rutherford and I am the vice chair of the charter division. I'm also the chair of the Acero Council with 15 different schools. 
I am also a visual arts teacher at Acero Marquez, which is right down the street. Hey, Marquez. Um, and Acero has 15 different schools in our in our charter, and we are our contract is up. It expired, and we are negotiating our new contract. But we're standing outside of Acero Idar, not just as Acero members. We are here with the entire charter division because all of our councils, their contracts are up right now and we're negotiating them. And it's not just the charter people that we're standing with, it's also the district members of the Chicago Teachers Union. We are standing in solidarity together. We've had three of the toughest years of our lives as teachers. This has been really, really hard. The pandemic hit our students and our staff incredibly hard and our students are suffering and we need more support, 100%. We have a wonderful opportunity right now to change the, the landscape of education in the city of Chicago and in the entire country. And that's what we plan to do. We are asking for more staff in our schools. We need more special education teachers. We need more bilingual education teachers. We need interventionists, academic interventionists in math and ELA, and we need behavior interventionists. Our students need to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with adults on a daily basis. They need that academic support, and they need that social-emotional support. And we have the money. Acero and all the other charters have the money, and they're not putting it in our classrooms. They're not giving it to our students. They're putting it in their boardrooms. They're putting it in their central office. And we're, <laughs> exactly, boo, no. We are demanding, demanding that they put it in our classrooms. We started the school year with 37 vacancies in the 15 Acero schools. I'm gonna say that again, 37 vacancies. Why do you ask? Because we don't have equal pay for equal work. Right. Our teachers are not paid a sustainable wage. And so we're also asking for equal pay for equal work and a sustainable wage so that we can have families and lives and love our jobs and work here as a career. We want to be here. We want, we love our students. They are the most important things to us. So we are demanding that all of our charter operators staff our schools and pay us equal pay for equal work. Thank you so much. I am Linda Murillo. I am the parent of two students out at Sisumbo. I am a teacher at Marquez, a bilingual teacher for middle schools. Um, in the beginning of the school year, I started as a social studies sixth grade teacher. That is out of my teaching spot. And I was put in there because we don't have teachers. During this time, I was not servicing any of my bilingual students. Um, they were without a teacher. I was the only bilingual teacher at that point. Um, during this time, they did suffer a whole lot because I was not supporting them where they needed to be supported. Until now, just recently, I stepped into my position, but still, we are understaffed in that department. So we are asking um, Acero to, you know, do what they need to do and get us all those bilingual teachers, especially if it's, it's Chicago is becoming a century city. We need to support and we need to bring everything that, that our students need once they are arriving. So Acero, give us what we need, give us what we're asking for. We need more bilingual teachers. My name is Denaria Dukes. I am the Vice President of PSRPs for Acero. I'm also a DL apprentice at the Zazumbo campus. We are here today because our students need more support. 
We do not have enough special education teachers or apprentices to support the needs of our students. Every spring, Acero cuts special education teachers and apprentices from our schools. This is a disservice to all of our students. We started the school year with 17 vacancies in our 15 schools in our special education department. This is reflective of the fact that we do not pay our staff enough. Again, we do not pay our staff enough. People are leaving because this job is not sustainable. We need equal pay for equal work and more staff. Thank you, Daniria. We know that when our teachers, our, all of our educators feel valued at their school and feel properly compensated, they stay at a school for a long time. And that provides, you know, uh, comfort, continuity for our students, and that is what our students need. Our next speaker is Matt Fang. He is a special education teacher at Ishka. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming out. My name is Matt Fang, F-E-N-G. I'm a special ed LBS1 teacher at Ishka High School. I've been a special education teacher for four years. And in that four years, my employer has hired zero additional LBS1s. They have offered endorsed tuition reimbursement to zero staff members to earn their LBS1 special education endorsement. In the four years I have been, I have taught special education or instructional separate, Algebra 1, Geometry, Algebra 2, and College Algebra. Did not have any curriculum, did any support. In the four years, I created that curriculum. I made it so that those, my games, curriculum, content matches our students. Our students have ADHD, OHI, intellectual disability, specific learning disability, stage two specific learning disability. And I made the content all for them in those four years. If you want to uplift black and brown people and children in this city, they need a technical advanced certificate at the city colleges. And every single certificate there requires math. You want to uplift these kids, they need math. In our special education class, for our soft and upperclassmen, we were upwards of 20 special education kids. And with their intellectual and specific intensity disabilities, it should have been 10 or 13 with a para. I had 21, 22. The students were literally sitting at the door. I said, fine, I'll do it. I did it for four years. I asked, can you please split the kids into a smaller class? They refused. And this year, you know what they did? They discontinued those special education classes and sent the kids back to the, special, to the gen ed classes. beginning of the school year, my students asked me, Mr. Fang, why don't I have you anymore? Mr. Fang, what happened to our class? Mr. Fang, I missed you. I want the employer to answer that question. Thank you, thank you so much. My name is Jen Conant. I am the chair of the charter division for CTU. I'm also a math teacher at CICS Northtown Academy. And we're here today to not just talk about what's happening at Acero, but what's happening across all of the charter schools in this city. Our students deserve better than the circumstances that we've heard about today. Our students and our schools deserve safe, sustainable, supportive schools. Supportive schools means that we have the staffing that our students need to be successful. We need those bilingual teachers, more special education teachers, academic interventionists, 
more wraparound services. We're out here demanding that today. We also need to make sure that our schools are safe places. We want to be um, mitigating the effects of COVID and ensuring that we have emergency preparedness plans. Um, some of our employers are lacking that. We want to make sure we have a safe community for our students physically and mentally, that we're supporting, supporting their emotional needs. And when we talk about sustainable schools, we want schools where our staff can stay long-term. That looks like fair compensation for the work that our staff members are doing so that they can support their families and stay there long-term. And it means working conditions that are reasonable, that don't drive educators out in a few years. The charter model or innovation is often to work people to the bone, turn them up within a few years, and we're here saying that is not okay and that we're gonna fight for better. So across the charter space, SCTU, we are working together to improve all of our contracts, all 13. We're not going to pit uh, students against students or educators against educators and say, oh, you only need better conditions in this one place, right? That is not acceptable. We are working together to ensure we improve conditions in all of our schools at all of our charter networks. And we're going to continue to stand together across all of those charter networks to fight for the schools that our students and our communities deserve. So we'll show up at a CERO board meeting, at other board meetings, whatever it takes, march in the streets until we get what our students deserve. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. Uh, last but not least, we're going to hear from Jackson Potter, uh, the vice president of CTU. All right, you know you're in Chicago when the sun goes down and temperature drops about 40 degrees, right? Well, we're going to get fired up here. We're at a crossroads. I think Caroline spoke to it. We've been through a lot these last couple years, right? A pandemic that once in 100 years, a lot of death, disruption, a lot of people struggling economically. Uh, we did get the government to put in a lot of money but there's questions about where is it going, right? So we have a path, we're at a crossroads here. You know, there's been a movement that's historic for racial justice during this same period. And this crossroads, it can either be we choose austerity, divestment, criminalization. Do we want to choose those things? Yeah. All right. Or we can choose love, investment, solidarity, fully staffed schools. What about that? Do we want that? All right. And the charter operators also have a choice. And unfortunately, they're choosing the wrong things. So we know they're supporting cap, uh, candidates in the state house that are against women's rights. We know they're supporting candidates in the state house that want to defund the schools. We know they're supporting candidates that want to continue cash bail that harm black and Latinx families the most. So we want them to stop doing that, stop giving money that belong to our classrooms, to charter management corporations, stop giving it to corrupt politicians, and give it to our students. Give it to the teachers that deserve a raise. Make sure you're filling the SPED and bilingual ed vacancies. That's what we want. But we got Lori Lightfoot, who's got a $120 million surplus in the city, right? And so she's spending billions from the feds that's supposed to go to our classrooms 
instead giving it to banks and to pay bills. Is that right? So we're asking all these people, if you're going to make money with Lollapalooza, with Riot Fest, with NASCAR, then you damn better sure spend some money on the students who deserve it, right? And so last but not least, we learned recently a chant from teachers in Mexico, and it's a little bit of a mouth, mouthful, but the way it goes is that teachers who are in the struggle are also teaching. And so... Let's see if we can say this one together. It goes, maestros luchando, también están enseñando. All right, we, on the count of three. Uno, dos, tres. Maestros luchando, también están enseñando. Yeah, I think we did all right. All right, y'all, let's go get them. A link to the full CTU press conference can be found up at laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a brief station ID break, but when we return, the fate of Latin America, and indeed the world, hangs on the outcome of the election today in Brazil. So make sure to stay tuned and hear about that. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. Today in Brazil, the runoff election for that country's president is being held. The first round was held on October 2nd with the famous Lula da Silva of the left-wing Workers' Party winning a considerable lead over the equally infamous Trump protege Jair Bolsonaro. Unfortunately, Lula narrowly missed the necessary 50% of the vote needed to win in one round, so a runoff was scheduled for today. In his four years in power, right-wing politician and admirer of Brazil's bloody military dictatorship from the uh, 60s to the 80s, Jair Bolsonaro has undermined democracy, engaged in blatant racist politics, served corporate interests while undermining the power of the working class, and savaged the country's natural environment. I'm sure that sounds familiar to most of you here in the U.S., who I'm sure recognize a pattern and a precedent. Indeed, much like our own former president, Bolsonaro has threatened to reject the results of today's election if he does not like the outcome. As the third largest economy in the Western Hemisphere, the fate of Brazil has tremendous impact not only on Latin America, but the world economy. The example set in Brazil can also put the nation either on the camp of countries in the region like Chile, Colombia, Bolivia, and Honduras that have seen great strides for democratic governance in recent years, or it can unite with them with this worldwide right-wing reactionary movement that has adherence and has gained power in places like Hungary, Italy, Poland, Russia, the Philippines, India, and of course right here at home. It seems as if we stand at a potential turning point in world history, to be honest. Add to that the fact that Brazil represents the world's lungs, as many have said, in the form of the Amazon rainforest, a region that has been hardest hit by Bolsonaro's policies. At a moment when devastating scale climate change and eco-catastrophe seem to be all but inevitable, humanity cannot allow the scale of deforestation that is taking place in Brazil under Bolsonaro. It has truly become an existential crisis. The folks listening tonight will likely have at least an inkling of the outcome of the election already. Unfortunately, as this program was produced for air on election eve, I have nothing but speculation about the outcome at the moment. Regardless of who wins, the following segment is, I think, relevant. It will either be evidence of the bullet that we dodged or a dystopian future that we are likely to experience. 
Our friends at Building Bridges, your community labor report on WBAI in New York City on October 3rd, a day after the first round of elections, interviewed two experts on the situation in Brazil about the stakes in Brazil's presidential election. So on this fateful day, I felt it was fruitful to air these segments, even if, as of editing, the outcome is uncertain. And you're listening to Building Bridges. And that's exactly what we're doing. And we're going to do that to Brazil. We're going to be joined on the ground in Brazil by political scientist and international advisor, Argentine-Venezuelan scholar, feminist, and social activist, Michaela Ovilar, she was the international relations advisor to President Hugo Chavez and has worked with the Venezuelan government for the last 15 years. She's an independent journalist and producer as well. And Maria, Maria Luisa Mendonca, a professor from the International Relations Department of the University of Rio de Janeiro, director of Brazil's Network for Social Justice and Human Rights, and currently a visiting scholar in New York's university system. And we are delighted to have you and to talk about the, let's be clear, the most important election in the Americas at this time. And uh, I want the Maria Luisa, as much as possible, I want you to really act more as co-host here and to interact with and interchange with our dear sister, Michaela, who's on the ground in Brazil. So feel free. And we begin by Michaela. We had hoped for the out-and-out defeat by more than 50% of uh, Mr. Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, That was not to be. So do tell us what's been happening on the ground with the elections. Well, it's it's been an exciting campaign, and it's been tough. Uh, you know, you can see, you can feel that the, the, the society is divided into these two models of, of uh, state and society. We know that, that Lula has a lot of chances to win the second term. And we knew that, that it, 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 it was an impossible thing to happen that Lula win in, in the first uh, term because, as I said, uh, the society is so divided, so uh, polarized, so politized as well. And these two models are like uh, the opposed, right? You have Bolsonaro representing the neo-fascist model in the country, and you have Lula representing the people of, of Brazil who wanted to, to get education, who wanted to, to get back their lives as it used to be in, in the past uh, government of, uh, of Lula. So there's these two models in confrontation, and... As uh, Lula's in the first meeting that he has after the result of, they're going to fight for for win in, in the second term, the 13th of October. So yeah, it's it's in a struggle. It's in a struggle of two two types of of, of society. Can I just yes. ask you also if there has been uh, violence from the Bolsonaro camp? Uh, because we're also talking, while we're looking at the presidential election, uh, we want to also look at the other elections that have taken place. And unfortunately, uh, many of the uh, lieutenants, if you will, of the Bolsonaro regime have made uh, headway and look like they will stay in office. So I'm I'm wondering about to what 
a degree there have been threats to the populace in this voting and whether you can tell if there have been real inequities, voter suppression and other things that have tried to thieve the votes for Lula. You mean that the elections were like general elections? That's what you mean? Because the, the people of Brazil went to, to the polls to, to elect president, governor, uh, mm-hmm. and deputies, the state and, and federal. And in the, in the Congress, Bolsonaro has the majority, keep the majority because he already got the majority. And there, there is a sector is called El Centrão uh, that is very powerful as well. And if Lula wins, as everybody's expecting, it's going to be really tough for him to, to make the law pass. He has a lot of project, but he, he knows that it's going to be difficult because you need, the, you need to, to, to get consent. And, and in the Congress, it's going to be very, very difficult. But, but he has... also said that today, he said mm-hmm. that he was going to try to convince the people that don't don't see the his project as as its own, and he's going to go after those votes. I also meant though on the ground, whether it's in the local uh, elections in the uh, Congress, if you will, or between Bolsonaro forces who have uh, been prone to and exercise violence uh, consistently and threatened to upon a loss, have they actually in the favelas or other areas uh, been threatening people who uh, are would-be voters for Lula? Yes. Not only in the communities, you know, now there is a, a different word to call favelas. It, it, they, they call it uh, communities, just to not make it so strong because it, you have this uh, stigmatization on mm. the word. Oh, thank you for uh, that education. So, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah, but, but it's, it's interesting. I'm just knowing this. Uh, I also use the word favela many times. So, well, in the, in the communities, but not only in the communities, uh, they're, they're also in, in each city, you know, especially in the city, because, for example, in Sao Paulo, uh, where uh, Bolsonaro has a, an important supporters, uh, amount of supporters, you can see the violence between, uh, how do you say it, uh, you see the violence in the way they express, the Bolsonaristas express about the Lulistas, and you see the violence in, in, in practice. Uh, there have been people that, that was threatened, and uh, there were people that was killed just for being from the PT, the Workers' Party, um, or for saying that they, they wanted to vote for Lula or things, things uh, that could represent a threat for them for their project, which, as I said, is a neo-fascist mm. project. Maria Luisa Mendonca, you are uh, somebody who has worked with, uh, you worked in the International Relations Department at the University of Rio de Janeiro. You are the director of Brazil's Network of Social Justice and Human Rights. Help us understand how we got to this or how Brazil got to this point after the defeat of the military and then with the rise of Lula. How is it that we got to the point of a neo-fascist administration, which still uh, has a considerable following uh, in Brazil, the administration of Jair Bolsonaro? Maria? Yes, uh, I think the only uh, reason 
why Bolsonaro was able to get elected was because, first of all, there was a parliamentary coup in 2016 against President Dilma Rousseff at that time. And then after that, there was a whole uh, huge media campaign and a lawfare campaign against Lula. And uh, he was put in jail, although there was no evidence against him. So he was put in jail on false charges. And he was not able to run in the last elections four years ago when Bolsonaro won. The only way the right-wing parties could take power you know, in the last several decades since the 90s uh, with neoliberalism was through these uh, mechanisms of staging a parliamentary coup, putting Lula in jail, and huge media campaign, fake news from mainstream media, from social media. So Bolsonaro is the result of a global far-right fascist movement. So he was not well known at all a few years ago. Now it seems like the Brazilian society is divided, but Bolsonaro is the result of an orchestrated media campaign and a coup. If there wasn't for the coup in 2016, he would not be in power. Also, Bolsonaro is the result of the mainstream right-wing parties going along with this fascist movement. So, you know, it's the neoliberal, uh, more mainstream right-wing parties that uh, forced the coup in the first place in 2016. And now they're paying the price because the ones that lost the most in these elections were the candidates from the mainstream, regular conservative parties that are being replaced by this far-right neo-fascist movement in Brazil. So now you have, you know, the Workers' Party that continues to be strong. You know, Lula got more votes anyway, uh, in spite of, you know, years and years of uh, attacks against him. And, uh, and now you have, you know, this far-right movement that uh, was not like something that the Brazilian society embraced spontaneously. It was the result of years of these new types of uh, anti-democratic mechanisms that uh, we see in many parts of the world. Michael, I wanted to add, add yeah. something. Yes, Michaela. Yeah. yeah, the thing is that also the, the elite... The Brazilian elite is more sophisticated than the rest of the Latin American elite, in which sense that, you know, the, it has to do with the, with the history of Brazil and how this huge country was uh, controlled by a very small Portuguese corona, Portuguese crown. And that, that makes the, the lead of, of, of Brazil to be more sophisticated in order to control the, 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 this um, huge population and also this huge uh, uh, geographic territory, which is Brazil, which is the biggest uh, country in Latin America and the Caribbean. So I'll say that this, this lead is also is connected with the United States and with the United States government, and the United States government is involved with in all these things that 
been going through uh, in the recent years and historically because it has been proved already that the the US government been involved in the coup d'etat of 1964 so there's there's a few things deeper in in the in the formation of the state and the government of of uh, and the elite uh, of the Brazilian society that that make it uh make also bolsonaro well now you call it bolsonarismo uh, and it looks like Bolsonaro created the Bolsonarismo, but it's not that, that way. As uh, Maria was saying, it was the Bolsonarismo that is, na- is naming like that right now, who make it possible that Bolsonaro get to power. So after Bolsonaro be defeated in the in the couple in a couple weeks, we still have the Bolsonarismo living here, so breathing here in the Congress, in the society, the, in the elite. And that is what is scared the most, I would say. Could you both talk about the differences in policy of both of these candidates? What has Bolsonaro done in the last four years, and what are their platforms, and what can we expect? And also, uh, we have to build in the Amazon and because uh, we, we opened this up by saying that, uh, which I got from you folks, actually, the Amazon is the lungs of the planet. And Bolsonaro's policies have been burn and slash and destroy the Amazon. So the whole issue of uh, ecology and the environment and the indigenous population fit very much into this. So, uh, And but women's it, rights. And, and women's right. rights and so on. So, Maria and Michaela, please. Yes, uh, one of the first things that Bolsonaro did when he took power was to dismantle the main institutions that uh, protected the environment and human rights in Brazil. He destroyed the Ministry of Environment, the uh, ministry that dealt with women's rights, that fought against racism, the human rights institutions, uh, all the environmental agencies that monitored deforestation in the Amazon, the Ministry of Labor. So he actually uh, did this process of uh, destruction of main institutions that uh, protected human rights, labor, and the environment. And also, in addition to these destructive policies, his rhetoric gave a green light for agribusiness corporations, mining corporations, and other uh, land grabbers in Brazil and also international corporations that benefit from this process to destroy the Amazon, to increase deforestation. A few years ago, you probably remember huge fires in the Amazon in the Brazilian savanna and the Pantanal, which is the wetlands. So the level of destruction is huge. And, uh, you know, we saw that there was a lot of visibility a couple of years ago with the fires, but in the last two years, deforestation actually increased. But it's not, we don't see that very much in the media here in the United States. So, but I think that it's important to also look at uh, U.S. corporations, mining corporations, agribusiness corporations, oil corporations that you know are also that play a key role in this process of destruction, which affects all of us. It has an impact in the whole 
hemisphere, the destruction of the Amazon has a huge impact on climate change, on the rain cycles in the whole hemisphere. And indigenous people have been, you know, protecting the Amazon. The you know, local communities have been, you know, in the front lines of this struggle. So and they also have been a main target of human rights violation, you know, violence, uh, killings. And so it's very important to build international solidarity. And uh, so that's why, you know, we need to make sure that uh, what have, this election is not just about Brazil, that uh, we also build international solidarity mm. with uh, social movements in Brazil that are making this huge effort to, you know, to make sure that uh, this neo-fascist orchestration uh, does not continue in the country. Michaela? I was thinking, uh, I was listening, paying attention uh, in what Maria was saying. And yeah, it's, it's like that. I mean, it, we're talking about a reconstruction of a whole uh, foreign policy, uh, national uh, programs, Everything was destroyed with, with Bolsonaro. So, uh, in all areas, ambiental, uh, housing, uh, everything, it's especially education and health. So, yeah, we're talking about a, a whole a whole reconstruction. And Lula say that they, they he has to do it not only the, the, he has to do not this not only the same thing that he he did already improved to be able to do, uh, but to do more than that and do it better because uh, the, the, the construction, the destruction, destruction of uh, Bolsonaro, it's, it's huge. It's terrible. You know what, I, I still have a hard time fully grappling with, and it's so important because there are echoes of it uh, in our uh, politics here and our uh, relationship with the uh, movement of the, the Trumpistas, if, if you will. <laughs> and that is, here is, uh, you know, we had the opportunity to meet with and interview uh, Dilma Rousseff and, uh, and Lula, uh, when they they came here to speak, uh, a working class individual who rises to prominence after a military, a monstrous military regime uh, that which was Bolsonaro's father, how really does fascism kind of inculcate itself? How does it take hold? And permit, I, I, I know, Maria Luisa, that there, there was certainly the engineered coup uh, with uh, Dilma and so on. But how is it that the populace, with these um, remarkable working class leaders that rose up after military dictatorship, were able to, to gain a foothold. I mean, what are the lessons that we need to, to learn and understand? Because we sure as heck want to apply them here as well as make sure that Lula is absolutely the, un, you know, the, the winner overwhelmingly in the next round of elections. Maria Luisa and uh, then yes. uh, Michaela. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that during the orchestration of the coup against President Dilma Rousseff and uh, the rise of Bolsonaro, you had very powerful forces 
first of all, you know, Brazil was isolated. No major country supported Dilma and announced the coup at that time in 2016. This narrative that uh, Lula was corrupt, that the Workers' Party was corrupt, Lula was put in jail, and that although there was no evidence against him, all the international media was going along with that narrative. And in Brazil, you had all the mainstream media. It's almost like, imagine if you only had Fox News in the U.S. That's how it was in Brazil. And then you had the evangelical churches that are powerful in Brazil as well. And the huge social media campaign spreading fake news against the Workers' Party and in support of Bolsonaro. So it was very difficult for social movements in Brazil, for the Workers' Party, for progressive forces to build, um, you know, a counter-narrative. And then after four years of a huge, you know, disastrous government by Bolsonaro, uh, that is more of a possibility of... uh, you know, change the narrative. This is what is happening now. And something that is interesting is that uh, a lot of uh, famous, famous Brazilian artists, you know, actors from, you know, mainstream uh, soap operas through, you know, musicians, very well-known musicians in Brazil, they're always speaking out. And they have a lot of visibility. And this has, has been an important element uh, against, the fear against the hate that the Bolsonaro camp is, is trying to continue to spread in society. So there is a huge ideological battle that it's difficult, you know, that's a very uh, difficult element. And that's why, you know, it's also important for us to amplify the narrative in international, in the international media as well. Uh, also, uh, I just want you to amplify for a moment, and then we'll give uh, Michaela the f- final word about what's happening on the ground. But if you can, in the next minute, the role of the uh, U.S. in uh, all of this, uh, Maria Luisa, uh, how have they uh, been supporters of the Bolsonaro administration, intervened and tried to prevent uh, the reconstitution of the uh, Lula the Lulistas rising to power again. Yes, in 2016, during the parliamentary coup, there was a lot of advocacy here. Actually, there was a movement in the U.S. Congress. More than 40 Congress members in the U.S. sent a letter at that time to the Obama administration asking them not to recognize Bolsonaro and you know, not, and not, not to, to support the coup against Dilma at that time. But you know, the U.S., the European Union, at that, you know, they did not denounce the coup at that time. Now, of course, it's clear that Bolsonaro has global alliances with this far-right movement that Trump is also a result of that. So that is you know, a close relationship between Trump and Bolsonaro. So hopefully, you know, there will be now Democratic Party here in the U.S. who understand that this is part of a global far-right movement and they have to have a different type of uh, attitude in Latin America. 
and Michaela on the ground. What is it uh, that you would like to uh, have us leave with? I will say that in this this less than 20, 24 hours that that we know that we knew the results, everybody's trying to analyze uh, what they represent, what they mean, uh, the numbers, what they mean, and they're trying to do like, like uh, Lula did just two hours ago. He he has his first meeting, and he was trying to have some programmatic agenda in order to to see what to do in the upcoming days and weeks. So everybody's like trying to see uh, how they make alliance, how they get the votes, get the people to, to well, to remain in the, the, the people that vote for Lula is going to vote for Lula and the people that vote for Bolsonaro, they're going to vote for Bolsonaro. So uh, the thing is the indecisos, the undecided, I think it is the word, and the abstention as well, that it, it was, it was important. So they're trying to, the people, you know, like the people, the releasers the, the are celebrating and the, the, the people, right? Then you have like the movement, you have the, the, the leadership that they're worried about how to get the votes, how to convince that the, they, they need then how to be part of this project and in both sides. So, Everybody's like analyzing what what it means result. That is when it, what is happening, and uh, Bolsonaro and and Lula are trying to build agendas. We're going to have to leave it there, but that's only for now because we're going to keep our eye on what is the most important election in the Americas now, and the second round is coming up, and uh, Michaela. Ovila, we want to thank you so much. You have no idea how uh, <laughs> how we tried to 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 reach Michaela, and uh, you know we're also trying to reach out to uh, Lula, and uh, maybe we'll be successful with that. And Maria Luisa Mendonca, who has been our, our analyst and the champion of human rights for decades, uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us. It has been most informative, and we'll keep a close eye. And you all stay strong. And we, again, have been speaking with our two great Michaela Ovitar and Maria Luisa Mandanka. Thank you so much. And for Building Bridges, I'm Amy Rosenberg. I'm Karen Nash. And stay strong. Stay well. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News 4, working people by working people. Well, folks, in the 24 hours in the future from the time that I'm recording this, you know better at that at your moment than I uh, the situation in Brazil and what's happened there and what that country and what the world faces. I hope that uh, the segment from our friends at Building Bridges in New York City is offering hope right now to you as you hear this and not despair. Thanks for longtime friends of Labor Express, Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg, for generously allowing me to steal from them on a semi-regular basis. They continue to produce one of the country's best labor-oriented radio programs with Building Bridges. I'm proud to be a fellow member, along with Building Bridges, of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. It's great to have people like that working together. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight's episode, but you can always find out more about Labor Express Radio and the stuff we cover here by going to laborexpress.org. That's laborexpress.org. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBW Local 1220. The Express and Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBW. 
Labor expresses a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor expresses a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. at 105.5 FM or on lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. 